complaining. I uh, want to invite our children to Children's Church, and, um, and then we'll take a moment and we'll pray. There they go. So let, let's uh, bow with your heads. Bow your heads with me and let's pray. Lord, uh, we are uh, definitely in need of you every moment. And so, Lord, would you remind us of that? Because sometimes we forget and feel self-sufficient or we feel our surroundings are providing or we think that uh, this is just the way things are and we get comfortable. Uh, Lord, help us to be dependent on you every day, uh, to need you every hour. And Lord, would you tune our hearts to cry out along with that hymn? Uh, this this beautiful truth. Thank you. And Lord, to that end, I want to pray for Harlan because he's he's feeling ill this morning and um, there's really nothing he can do to make it go away. All he can do is rest in you and um, pursue the means that you've given him for relief. And so, Lord, I pray that uh, he and Dana this morning would be resting in you, trusting in you, remembering that they need you every hour. And so have mercy on them. And Father, I want to thank you for um, Jen uh, Krumreich being with us this morning. Thank you for her visit, uh, even though it is to come and take Jeannie away and take her back to, uh, to New Jersey. Uh, Father, we pray for that, for our dear sisters, and we ask that you'd give them a safe journey, uh, that um, they would settle again when they get home. And, and uh, Lord, we thank you for the time that we've got to spend with them. We ask your blessing on them. They are a huge blessing to us. And Lord, now as we turn to your word, we, we ask that you would open our hearts and our minds to understand what we are to get from this passage, uh, how we are to understand what you're telling us this morning. And help me to say it well, I pray in Christ's name. Amen. So I've been pastor here just over nine years, and I don't know if this ever came up. I don't know if I ever told you this. I'm a gigantic Star Trek nerd. I don't know if that's ever come up before. If it, if it hasn't, I want to clear the air right now and give you a demonstration of what a huge nerd I am. So the original series is my introduction to Star Trek. I'm that old. Uh, that's where I started. And one of the episodes in the original series was called the Galileo seven. And the enterprise is booking across the galaxy and they happen to come upon a quasar and they have to stop and investigate. So they launch the Galileo with seven crewmen and there's huge turbulence and interference and everything from this quasar and the, the Galileo gets lost and it crashes on a planet. Um, so once they get on the planet, they, they have to repair the, their shuttle to get back off and to hopefully catch back up to the Enterprise. Uh, but they soon find out they're not alone. There are giant creatures that they refer to as huge apes, ape-like creatures who have these giant spears. And almost immediately, one of the crewmen is killed. I'm happy to report it's not a red shirt. This, this is uncommon. The, the two red shirts on the shuttle actually survive. Um, so the survivors decide they need to repair the shuttle and they can't be harassed by these ape-like creatures, so they decide to go on the offensive. They're gonna just attack and drive them off and give them hopefully enough time to get the shuttle repaired. So they do that, and another crewman gets killed. And so the survivors sh uh, uh, gather again in, in the shuttle, and we get that one of those famous exchanges between McCoy and Spock. Well, Mr. Spock, they didn't stay frightened very long, did they? Most illogical reaction. We demonstrated our superior weapons, they should have fled. You mean they should have respected us? Of course. Mr. Spock, respect is a rational process. Did it ever occur to you that they might react emotionally with anger? Doctor, I am not responsible for their uh, unpredictability. They were perfectly predictable to anyone with feelings. You might as well admit it, Mr. Spock, your precious logic brought them down on us. And the, the shuttle is suddenly rocked 
as one of the creatures is banging a rock on it, attacking the shuttle with a rock. Spock says, strange, step by step, I have made the correct and logical decision, and yet two crewmen have died. And McCoy says, and you brought their furry friends down on us. Spock says, I do seem to have miscalculated regarding them and inculcated resentment on your parts. The sum of the parts cannot be greater than the whole. McCoy says, much less analysis or a little more anal analysis and more action. That's what we need, Mr. Spock. So the, the point of the episode, the, the kind of the grand um, moral lesson of the episode is that um, logic can only take you so far. And Spock seems to get it because the way the episode ends is they get the shuttle repaired, but they don't have enough fuel. They can only get into orbit and complete one orbit, and then they're going to fall back down and burn up. So their only chance is get up where they can be hopefully seen by the Enterprise and be rescued. So they, they launch and they're going, and all of a sudden Spock gets this look on his face and he reaches over and he flips fuel dump. And Scotty says, what are you doing? What he does is he flipped the fuel switch and then he ignited the fuel. So there's this burning trail behind him. And suddenly you see this, this look on Scotty's face. He gets it. He says, it's a flare. And, and what Spock said was, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm doing this. We're going to wind up burning back down anyway. So maybe if I light this fuel on fire, that'll be something that the Enterprise sees. Of course, this is Star Trek and it's Scott, Spock and McCoy, they've got to survive. And so the Enterprise detects this band streaking across the planet and they rush in and they save them at the last moment. The moral of the story is logic will only take you so far. And so Spock had to act illogically. The, the more logical answer would be stay alive as long as you possibly can. You increase the odds that the Enterprise will get you. The answer was burn your fuel and hopefully they'll see that. He needed to have, and that's the epilogue that is he's rationalizing this in a, this irrational um, action in a logical fashion. This was entirely logical that he would do that. So the point that I wanna take from that is that you can sometimes make every single right, logical, correct decision and be dead wrong. You can be absolutely miss it. You can make all the right decisions given all the right things because you're missing something. And that was where Spock went wrong, is he missed the fact that these creatures that are attacking him are not logical. They're emotional, they're irrational, they're, they're violent. And he couldn't process that. So he made the right decision, but didn't have all the information. This morning, as we turn to 1 Samuel, what we're going to see is a similar situation. The people are going to make a right decision and be dead wrong about it. And so that's, that's what we're going to see. Hopefully this will teach us how to reason as a Christian. That's where we're going to go with this. So let's take a look. It starts with the story of Samuel. Now, remember, we saw Samuel in chapter four, and then he disappeared for 20 years. And he showed up again in, in last chapter, in the beginning of chapter seven. And it appears that it has been a number of years since chapter seven began because of the way it's described. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life, all the days of his life. And he went on this circuit and he had three or uh, two sons. So there's been a lot more time elapsed from when we last saw him. Not only that, but the people are complaining because he's old. He's not going to last forever. So as much as this book is called First Samuel, we don't get much about his life. We get skipped giant parts of it. Um, so this is what happens is he has two sons and he appoints them judges and they're stinkers. They, they are after selfish gain. They take bribes. They're just bad kids. Does that sound familiar? Who was the last judge we saw? That was Eli. And how did his kids turn out? They were pretty rotten too, only they were a little bit worse than Samuel's, I think. 
So this is the situation that they're in is, is their one judge is about to pass away. He's getting old. His sons are not trustworthy in any way, shape or form. And so what happens? Chapter eight, verse four, all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, behold, we are, you are old and your sons do not walk in your, our, or walk in your ways. Now appoint to us a king to judge us like the nations. So there's the, there's the issue. The elders of the people look to, to Samuel and say, this isn't working. This isn't going to work. Look to the future. And what have we got? We don't want your sons judging us. And you're going to die anytime soon. We could be in a world of hurt if we don't have an adequate successor here. And then looking back, they go, and the last time this happened, we had Eli. Fortunately, you were around. But otherwise, who knows what we'd have wound up with. And then if you think, you know, their history in the book of Judges, we got a pretty bad history with this judge thing. Samuel, the judge issue has not been working. It just isn't functioning well for us. We're in a position of danger. The Philistines could show up again at any time. We could wind up having the, the um, tribes, which are kind of a loose affiliation at this point, just drift apart. We could be assume, or just um, uh, absorbed into the surrounding community. We could wind up wash, worshiping false gods again. We just got over that. We don't want to go there. So we need an answer. The logical, clear, reasonable answer is we need a judge or we need a king. We need somebody in a permanent position who will be here to lead this nation, who will take us from where we are to where we need to be. He'll be our rallying point. He'll be our center. We will serve our king. We will, we will have this king to be the center of our nation. It'll give us a common identity. It'll draw us together rather than this rotating judge thing. That's what we need because we need our nation to survive. So Samuel, appoint for us a king like the nations around us. It works for them. It's going to work for us. That is a, a reasonable, a logical, it makes sense. This was a, a desperate time of need for the nation. They have been beaten up way too many times and they want some stability. So the, the king will hopefully hold the tribes together, will give them an economic center. He'll be the, the buzz, the, the person that people can trade with, not as individual nation or tribes, but as a nation. There's just so many benefits to this. The king is the obvious answer. Verse six, but the thing displeased Samuel. There's something wrong with this. This displeased Samuel. This didn't, Samuel didn't go, you know, you're right. My kids are kind of, you know, they're off the farm right now. So it displeased him. And so what he does is he cries out to the Lord. And apparently it displeased the Lord too, because the Lord said, obey the voice of their people for they've not rejected you. They have rejected me as being king over them. So here's what the situation is, is Samuel could feel like they want a king because they don't want me. They want to replace me. And, and God is saying, no, it's not about you, Samuel. It's about me. I am their king. And they don't want me anymore. So God had been ruling through these judges. He had been their king. He had just raised up a judge to be the physical presence in front of the people to do the job that needed to be done. So when they say we don't want judges anymore, what they're really saying is we don't want God's rule anymore. We want something more practical. It displeased Samuel, and apparently God was not too pleased with it. And so he tells them, uh, he goes on to give them a history lesson, verse 8, according to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods. What's the pattern of the people been? They have never been content with me being their king. 
They have always been seeking other gods. They have always been turning aside. Ever since the day I brought them up out of Egypt, they've behaved like this. So he says, now then obey their voice, do what they wanted. They want a king, we'll give them a king, but warn them what a king is going to be like. And so that's what Samuel does next is he goes to them and he says, here's what a king's going to do. Verses 10 through roughly 18. And as I was reading it, I was struck by what was the one word you kept hearing over and over again? Did it, did it get to you? Take. He will take your sons. He will take your crops. He will take this. He will take that. He will make you slaves. He's going to take. If you put a king in there, he's going to consume everything. You will be his slaves. You're going to owe him everything in the world. Now, here's the question. And, and this is debated in the commentaries quite a bit. Was the problem that they wanted a king? Was, was it that they were not supposed to have a king and they, they wanted one and it was something that was never part of the plan? It can't be. That can't be true. Here's why. Deuteronomy chapter 17, Moses writes to them and he says, and when you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you and possess it and dwell in it, then you will say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. And you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. This is Deuteronomy. This is long before the time of the judges. So God had already planned there would be a king. As a matter of fact, when Jacob is, is about to die and he blesses his son, his blessing on Judah was the scepter will never depart from between his feet. Judah is going to be a king. He's going to have this kingly um, position amongst his, his brothers. That's much even further back. And then we have the problem of Jesus is a king. So if there was never supposed to be a king, then what was Jesus supposed to be doing? So the problem is not, we want a king. The problem is the last part of that phrase, like the nations around us. This displeased him. This displeased Samuel. This displeased the Lord. And so God is not opposed to that, but he wants them to understand what it's going to be like when you get a king the way you want a king, rather than waiting for me to appoint a king. And so the, way the section ends, but, God, but the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. Samuel was probably telling them, wait on the Lord. He, he's risen up judges. He will raise up a king at the right time. Let's not push this. But they refused to obey him. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we may also be like the nations. You see the problem there? We want to be like them. They have success. They have a king. They have this, this regal pomp and circumstance. We want that. We want to be like them that he may go out and fight our battles, that he'll lead us, that he'll be that center point of our society. And so Samuel comes back and tells God, and God again reminds Samuel, obey the voice and make them a king. And so Samuel says, okay, everybody go home. We'll, we'll deal with this. So what's going on here? What are we supposed to take from this? One of the things I think we should do is we should look at this and say, how did they fail? How did they reason so wrongly that they would say, we want a king like the nations around us? What components were they missing that would lead them to do that? And I think one of the problems is they're not reasoning like a Christian. They're not reasoning as a Christian. And I picked those words very carefully. Reasoning. Christianity, the science says the opposite of reason is faith. That doesn't make a lick of sense. That's no good. That's not true. We can reason, and we can reason as Christians, as believers. So we reason as, not like, not instead of, but as. As a Christian, we're using our reason, our mental faculty to figure this out. And I said Christian instead of 
believer or Israelite, because the ultimate picture of this is Jesus, as we'll see. And so we have to reason as Christians. So let's step back into this and say, how could they have reasoned better? How could they have thought through their circumstances better? So again, the problem is we don't have a king. We've got these judges. The future looks pretty bleak as far as the next judges coming up. We don't see anything on the horizon. If we have a king, that's going to fix it. We'll have somebody in there permanently. And this king, if he has a, if God grants him the nice long life, by the time he comes to the end of his life and is ready to leave his throne, he will have had all this experience, all this knowledge, all this wisdom, and he will pick a son who will sit on his throne and do wonderful. This is better than the judge system. That's, that's their thinking. What, they're th- what, they're, what are they forgetting? Well, first of all, they're forgetting God. They've forgotten. That's why God says, look, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. Just as they have done all along, they have sought other gods. They're forgetting me as God. In other words, the whole equation is not the politics of the situation and the economics of the situation. The the point is, these are God's people, and he'll rule them, and he will provide for them, and they just need to stop. So to reason like a Christian, the first thing we have to do is believe that there is a God, that he is real, and that he rewards those who seek him. You you have to start, in in philosophical terms, it's called a foundational presupposition. Those two words are really important. It's foundational. In logic, when we talk about something that is foundational, what we mean is we believe it even though we have no proof of it. And so a foundational presupposition is I believe this to be true with no proof, and I'm going to build on it. That's the presupposition. So this is why science goes, oh, faith is the opposite of reason. No, because science begins with reason too. You have to have the foundational presupposition that your senses are accurately reporting the world to you. That when I look out this morning and I see a crowd of people, I have to believe that my eyes are actually reporting to me that there is a crowd of people, not that it's some figment of my imagination. When, when I hear the piano play and the people sing, I have to believe that my ears are accurately reporting to me that we are singing together. Those kind of things. That is a foundational presupposition. I cannot prove to you that my eyes are working correctly. I can't prove to you that I'm not a brain in a vat being stimulated. That's foundational. So you have to have a foundational presupposition. For the Christian, our foundational presupposition is God is real. He exists. He is there. As a matter of fact, you remember the illustration I used last week was uh, DeMar Hamlin being injured in that football game. Um, The following Sunday the Bills played the Patriots. And when they kicked the football, the, pa- the Patriots kicked off, the Bills received it almost in the end zone and ran it all the way down to the other end of the field, an immediate touchdown, just that quick. When they ask uh, Josh Allen, the quarterback for the Bills about that, he had tears in his eyes. And he said, one of the trainers told me it's been three years and three months since we did that. Well, so what? What's big about three years, three months? DeMar Hamlin's number is three. Everybody was holding up number three in the stadium. And so Josh teared up, he choked up, and he said, God is real. That was all he could get out. That is a Christian presupposition, a foundational presupposition. God is real, and it will affect how we think about everything else. Because we're not just looking for this action, this action, this action. There is something that we can't see, something that is above all of this that is superintending it. So to reason like a Christian, we have to believe that God exists, that he is. Now, the other thing that happens is we look at this and we say, well, what's this God like? 
Is he distant? Is he cold? Is he isolated? Has he moved away? No, this God who we believe in, he's personal, and we can feel it that he has a relationship with us. We can experience that personal. We believe that he's real. He's personal. He communicates. He does things. He's active. He's engaged. Even today, why did we pray for Damar Hamlin? Because we believe God exists and that he will answer prayers. He's personal. He's powerful. So we have to believe that about God. But when you look out at the world, something ain't right. Something's broken here. Even the most leftist, liberal, non-believer has a sense that the world is not just and it should be just. The world is not even, it's not fair, and it should be. So everybody has this sense that something's broken. The Christian says, that's sin. That's because humanity rebelled against this God who's personal, communicative, loving. And because of that sin, we have broken relationships. We have broken everything. And so a Christian has to say, well, first of all, we start with the reality of who God is. The next thing is we have to acknowledge sin is real and sin has stained everything including my ability to reason, including my ability to love, including my desires. Everything has been stained by sin. So we have this beautiful, loving God. We have this problem of sin. How does this personal, loving, caring God solve that? He sent his only son. So now we say God is one God, but at least two persons, a father and a son. And he sent his son. He he willingly sent his son into the world to deal with this sin problem. And so we can know him. We can experience him because Jesus has come. God actually cares enough to send his only son. This is how we begin to reason Christian life. Because we're saying these are, these are truths that we, we have to hang on to. And they're going to affect how we understand everything else. So since there is this God we can't see, since there is this sin that we can't, you know, take out and look at, but we can see the effects of, we have to admit that there is a spiritual reality to this world that we can't quite comprehend. It's not visible, it's not tangible, but we can, we can sense it. We're aware that it's happening. And we know this because we have the scriptures. God has given us his word. We believe that the Bible is God's inerrant, infallible word to us, that he has spoken that he wants us to understand things. It doesn't tell us everything we want to know. I'm not going to learn how to change the spark plugs in my car by reading my Bible. But what I need to know, God has told me in his word. And so we have to go to these things. And to keep all of this together, to keep all of this hung together, one of the most important things we have to do when it comes to reasoning like a Christian is have humility. Because God is not us and we are not God, because sin has stained us and broken us, we have to say, I could be wrong. There are things I could be wrong about. I don't think I am, but I could be wrong. That's called epistemological humility. Big, another $10 word of the day. Uh, pistos is the Greek word for faith. So to be epistemological, it is to understand, to see, to grasp. How do we understand truth? And epistemological humility says, I could be wrong on two things. I don't think I am, otherwise I would change, but I could be. So when it comes to eschatology, the end of times when Jesus returns, Dan believes that Jesus will return before the great tribulation that comes upon the world. Before all of the problems come upon the world, God's judgment is poured out. Dan believes Jesus will come and he will take his church away. I believe 
that we are, as a church, called to endure, including the great tribulation, and that after this great tribulation, then Jesus will come and he'll reign. And Dan and I can get along, and we can minister together very closely, very tightly, because both of us have epistemological humility. And so what we do is when we come across a verse that supports our version and not his, we elbow each other and smile and snicker. But we're willing to hold it open enough to say, I could be wrong about this. I hope I'm not. I'm trying not to be. I'm pretty convinced I'm right, but we could be honest with that. So in all of this, to reason as a Christian, the paramount thing we have to do is have humility in this. My friends, you are not God. I hope that doesn't come as a shock to you. It's actually tremendously good news. God is superior over all these things. So now with all of these thoughts in our heads, with all these big $10 words and everything, let's step back into Israel's day and say, how should we respond? How would, how would we respond with all of this understanding, with this, this clear, more, more clear thinking? You would look, first of all, at reality. God created reality. He created the universe. He made this the way it is. When you look out, you trust that this is the way I, the life actually is. And so when you're standing there with Israel and you look and you go, yeah, you know, we're in deep weeds. This could go really poorly. We're watching these other nations rise up. They're getting more powerful, more strong, more economically uh, advantaged. And looking at our future, we have this problem. Samuel's been great. His sons are not. Who's coming next? Stop. God. God is the one who's ruling over this. God raised up the judges at the right time when they were needed. God sent the judges away when they were done. We need to start with this understanding of, yes, this is our current situation. Yes, it looks pretty dire, but God. And so what I think is really instructive is when God said, when Samuel first came to God and said, hey, the people want a king, God's response is a history lesson. They've been like this since I let them out of Egypt. That little bit of history lesson shows them who, why are they a nation to begin with? God. How did, God, how did he, they become a nation? Because God led them out of another nation. No other nation was born like that. They were always there. The Edomites were uh, Esau's descendants, and they moved into this vacant land, and they inherited it, and they, they built up their cities and everything. Israel came out of Egypt. God formed them as a nation. They forget that. They needed to remember this. God has formed us. He will take care of us. He will lead us. He will provide for us. Even though we're facing this huge opposition, these real dangers, we're trusting God. This is true. We can, we can rest in him. God loves us. He's, he cares for us. So maybe the better response here would have been Samuel. Go to his prophet, right? This is, this is God's prophet. He's, he's going to talk with God. Samuel, here's the problem. We don't see a clear path forward in the future. You're old. Your sons are putzes. And we just don't want to get broken up and lost. We think we need a king. Would you appeal to God and see what he wants? That would have been the better, the reasoning like a Christian is to go to God and say, whatever's going on, what do you want? And God's answer might be, yeah, here's a king, this kid named David, go find him, he's great. Or it might be, no. For right now, you're going to just have to deal with this. I have a plan, I have a purpose, I'm working towards an end, but no. And, and to reason as a Christian in that instance would be, yes, Lord. Because we trust you, because we have your promises. You led us out of Egypt. When you took us out of Egypt, you made tremendous promises to us. We believe those promises are going to come true. This is the example of Abraham. Abraham, take your son, your only son, the one, who through, the one through whom I have said I will bless the nations. Take him up on a mountain and kill him. 
if you discount God from this, you go, what? That's a stupid idea. How, is it, how, many, how am I going to have kids through him if I go up and kill him? What was Abraham's response? Son, pick up the wood. Let's go. He believed God. He trusted. He kept God in the equation. The people here have forgotten who God is in the middle of this. And they need to have that epistemological humility. They need to have humility in this. And they go to God and they say, hey, we want a king. We think a king is the answer. And God says, no, not right now. And the humility would say, yes, Lord, that's, that's best. We trust you in that. Because what they could do is say it was, it was wrong to ask for the king in the way we asked for it. Now let's humbly go with whatever God says. And they didn't do that. So I, I came across a, a tweet this morning. It really fascinated me. I've, I've never knew this. Um, remember the Salem witch trials? What happened was the governor of Massachusetts sailed back to uh, England for something. And the people there freaked out and started burning ladies because they thought they were witches. And when he came back, he shut the whole thing down. Stop. You're not supposed to be doing this. Put an end to it. Massachusetts on January 15th, 1697, had a day of fasting and repentance for the 1692 Salem witch trials. Quote, so all of God's people may offer up fervent supplications unto him that he would show us what we know not and help us wherein we have done amiss to do so no more. That's humility. That's coming back and going, we burned witches. We burned these women with hardly any, any uh, justification for it. That's horrible. Lord, please forgive us and help us to not be stupid anymore. That's, that's humility. That's what we should be looking for here is to cry out this way. Was this just stranded to Israel in, in the time of Samuel? Tragically not. What happened when the actual king showed up? Jesus comes and walks amongst them. They were mad at him because our king is going to come here and he's going to deal with these Romans and he's going to establish this nation as independent again. He's going to usher in this golden age. And Jesus, all you're doing is healing people, casting out demons, multiplying bread and fish. What's up with that? Get rid of the Romans. Do you see the, the problem there? These great, huge miracles have happened in, your, in front of you, and you're going, that's not good enough. That's not what we wanted. Deal with our political problem. And so when Jesus is on trial... The people cry out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. They rejected God as being king over them again and again and again. Now, we have a slightly different situation. We are the church of Jesus Christ. We don't have a homeland that, that's going to be invaded by foreign forces. We are scattered across the globe. And so we, we have this, this, we don't have the nation to protect as much as the church. What did Jesus tell us about his church? I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So when somebody says we're going to defend Christianity, that's Jesus' job. He's going to defend Christianity. He's going to protect us. He will ensure that the gates of hell don't prevail against his church. So to rate reason Christian-like in this way, to reason as a Christian in this way, is to recognize as horrible as the situation is, there are parts of the world right now where Christians are being horribly abused. There, there's still that case of um, a Christian pastor who was beheaded on the beach in Egypt by Muslim extremists. Do you look at that and go, we're, we're going to lose? We're done here. 
No, Jesus said the gates of hell won't prevail. They're not going to stand. And so we have to reason as Christians in this world, first of all, accept reality as it is. This is the way things are. Sometimes it's great. Sometimes it really is horrible. God is still God in the midst of all of it. And pray, call out. That's the humility. Lord, we don't want pastors being executed on beaches. That's not the desirable thing. And then accept God's answer. For now, my children, this is the way it's going to be. Just wait. That's the epistemological humility. That's reasoning like a Christian. And so the people have called out for a king. You know what? They're going to get a king. At first, they're going to get a spanking. <laughs> the spanking looks like Saul, but they're going to get a king. They're going to get a king who is a man after God's own heart, a king who is a, a wonderful theologian, a king who is a, a passionate poet, who is the sweet psalmist of Israel. They'll get him, but they need to be corrected first, and so they're going to have to deal with Saul. So everybody go to your own city. And I think that's a sign of resignation on Samuel's part is like, okay, we're going to do this. This ain't going to go, this is not going to go well, but here we go. Let's do this. But the great news is David failed. He slept with Bathsheba. He murdered Uriah. He, he numbered the people for his own vainglory. His son, Solomon, this is going to be it. This is going to be great. Built the nation, tons of money multiple wives, false gods, read the book of Ecclesiastes. He's just defeated. He's, he's messed it all up and the kingdom is separated. Will that ever happen to our king? Will King Jesus ever fail like that? We have all of those echoes, all of those promises of that king. We have the reality of it. What we don't have yet is the kingdom. The kingdom is still coming. And Jesus said, pray, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's coming. And so what we need to do is reason as Christians in the middle of the struggle and trust God. We have a greater promise. We have a greater covenant. We have a greater king. And so let's walk with Israel through this. Get ready to take some bumps. See how bad it goes. But understand God has purpose in this too. He's leading us to a better conclusion. Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, we're grateful that you are the Messiah, and the Messiah is the Christ who is a king. And so, Lord, as the, the um, leaders of Israel said, we have no king but Caesar, Lord, we have no king but Jesus. And, Lord, we submit willingly to uh, emperors, to, um, to prime ministers, to laws, to presidents, to Congress. But, Lord, we have ultimately no king but, but Jesus. And so, Lord, would you help your church to reason carefully, think through the implications of a day-to-day -day life, and come to conclusions that trust that God is real, that sin has actually happened, that Jesus is the answer, and there's a spiritual reality we can't account for. Lord, grant us humility. We ask these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. Please stand. <clears throat>